From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org slash holiness. This is Vern Jewett welcoming you to the Holiness Podcast. We are delighted that you've joined us today to seek to grow in our faith and Christian walk by studying together in God's Word, the Bible. As I am recording this lesson, we remain in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're experiencing challenges that we could not have imagined at the beginning of this year. For months, our news media and airwaves have been dominated by the need for protection from this serious and deadly virus. We hear every day about the need for face masks, social distancing, regularly washing our hands, and using antiseptic sprays and gels. Perhaps the fact that we've been forced to think about the battle with this pandemic can help us appreciate the spiritual battles we face every day in living for Christ. I don't know how you think about the challenge of being faithful to God and of living in a way that sets us apart as completely His. But the Bible uses the metaphor of spiritual warfare to teach us about everyday Christian living throughout its pages. The great news is that God doesn't command us to be holy and faithful and then leave us on our own to make it. Absolutely not. Our lesson today can be summed up like this. There is a way of living in faithfulness and obedience to God that nourishes our spirit while making life complete and redemptive. It is a picture of holy living that is based upon Paul's teaching of the armor of God that protects us spiritually as we live for him. Our text is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, a passage many of you will know as Paul's instructions to the Ephesians, the Christians at Ephesus, to put on the armor of God. I want to deal with the text in two sections, so we'll begin with verses 10 to 13. I'm reading from the New International Version. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Wow, there is so much here that we could spend time on that would be beneficial to us, but I want to focus on the armor of God as it is outlined in verses 14 to 18. So let me highlight some key things about this first section, verses 10 to 13. 
Paul begins by giving two commands, two imperative statements that are very important. These two instructions will carry the weight of all that follows. First in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We've seen in past lessons that holy living is a matter of receiving and embracing God's gift to us, which is power through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The phrase in his mighty power is word for word the same phrase he used in the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, when he speaks of his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I've always been greatly encouraged when I've heard preachers and teachers refer to resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus as the very same power that is available to me. Well, here is where God's word asserts that very fact. The same power that raised Christ from the dead provides protection for you and me in our spiritual battle with Satan. Hallelujah. Secondly, verse 11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul uses the word stand four times in four verses, making clear that standing firm is our battle objective. We're not instructed to attack or advance. No, the truth is you and I need divine protection against the ongoing attack of the enemy. We live in a war zone. We're constantly under attack. The enemies are spiritual forces and powers of darkness, which Paul elaborated on in verse 12, which we read. Have you ever wondered why life is so difficult? Why bad things happen to good people? Or why life seems to be such a series of struggles sometimes? Why committed Christians have a hard time staying married? And why churches go through acrimonious splits? Why, in spite of all of our cultural and technological advances, we still can't achieve peace in the world or even in our communities? The reality of spiritual warfare provides the answer. Life is difficult because we have an incredibly malicious, highly organized, persistent, and darkly devious enemy who is out to destroy us. Let me say this bluntly. Every day, your evil foe sets his sights to destroy your marriage, your kids, your friends, your church, everyone and everything you care about. I want to make two quick observations about these verses before we look at the armor of God. The armor is God's, not ours. I believe many Christians miss this important truth. Paul is going to link the parts of the armor of a soldier, would have been a Roman or a Greek 
soldier in the context of Ephesus, the belt, the shield, the breastplate, the sword, and so on. He's going to link them with spiritual attributes, resources that are divine gifts to us. I don't want us to focus on the metaphors, the parts of the armor that are used as illustrations. Rather, let's focus on the reality of God's spiritual gifts to protect us. I remember as a child in Sunday school a hundred years ago, being taught the armor of God with flannel graph figures. Anybody remember that? Flannel graphs were a teaching tool made up of a fabric-like felt that lets you place items on a board that adhered to the surface. And putting up all of the armor items of a Roman soldier was a great way to teach this lesson. However, as a boy, I was always captivated by the soldier's armor to the detriment of the real lesson about God's armor. I find it fascinating that Eugene Peterson in the message recognized that danger of being distracted, of missing the real point so much so that he didn't even mention the pieces of the armor in his paraphrase of our passage. He says, Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. Did you catch that? More than words, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. These are the living realities of a Christian walking through life in the power of God and the Holy Spirit. For sure, they are God's armor, His divine protection of His children. Not only is the armor God's, but not ours, we need God's armor because otherwise we're unequipped for the battle. Do I hear an amen? Of course, we are unequipped on our own. We need God's armor when we begin our day. Just as our kids need to be strapped into their seatbelts in the car. When I was a kid, we didn't have seatbelts, or airbags, or sunscreen, or bicycle helmets. Listen to Rick Stedman in his book, Praying the Armor of God. Safety preparedness is a good thing, and parents are wise to protect their kids physically. My plea is for us to do the same thing spiritually. Unfortunately, many seem to be unaware that they are in the middle of a spiritual war zone. They don't realize that the evil one has his sights on them and has a plan that very day to harm them. We all need protection. Spiritually, life is no picnic. It's a battle. Once we grasp this, the sensible question is, how can we protect ourselves 
and our loved ones against this enemy. Fortunately, Paul explains the reality of our battle with evil and then tells us what to do. And then he quotes our passage from Ephesians 6. This passage which is aimed at the reality of the enemy's threat to our spiritual lives. We are unequipped, but God has provided for us all that we need to stand firm. I love the words to the song, Total Praise, by Richard Smallwood. Listen to them and be encouraged that we are not left on our own. Lord, I will lift mine eyes to the hills, knowing my help is coming from you. Your peace you give me in time of the storm. You are the source of my strength. You are the strength of my life. I lift my hands in total praise to you. We are unequipped. We can't forge our own weapons, not by our reason, our intuition, our education, our experience. Too many Christians believe that all they need is to be saved, and then they can do just fine. If any of that kind of thinking has invaded your life and threatened your faith, then this lesson will hopefully illuminate the spiritual battle we're in and awaken you to a glorious reality. God's armor, available to us, is sufficient. Now, what we're doing is looking at the life of holiness through the window of our faithfulness to God and his divine protection of us. Now, the past two lessons, we've done topical Bible studies on sin and grace. This week, we're returning to our more usual methodology of taking a textual passage and digging into it more deeply than we often do in regular Bible studies. God's Word is so rich and, in fact, inexhaustible in ways we can't imagine. But with the Holy Spirit as our teacher, we can learn from the same passage over and over again. Okay, here we go. The first piece of our spiritual armor is the belt of truth, buckled about your waist. The belt holds things together. For the soldier in Paul's time, its most immediate and practical use was to hold tight and gather in his tunic so that he had the freedom of movement that he would need. We live in a world where truth is under siege. We're surrounded by claims of false truth, elusive truth, alternative truth. The assault on truth in our culture is unprecedented and threatens the foundations of our society in a way I've not seen in my lifetime. The very concept of truth is often treated today with disdain. My truth is mine, and it's just as good as yours regardless of reality. Friends, it is not accidental that the belt of truth is listed first in the armor of God. 
Maxie Dunham in his commentary on Ephesians says, the imagery here is that truth holds together all other virtues and makes them effectual. Truth is the first thing we put on. Without it, we are completely lost. It means that we have a settled conviction with regard to the truth. It means there are no uncertainties, no doubts. It means there must be no lack of clarity. There is no hope, Paul says, unless you put this on first. And that means nothing less than we should know whom we have believed and we should know what we believe. Of course, ultimate and objective truth is rooted in the personality and makeup of God. Truth is God's view of reality, and it's found in the revealed Word of God, the Bible, where He has pulled the curtain back and told us who He is and who we are and how we are to live. Jesus prayed for His disciples in John 17 and said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is embodied in Jesus, who said to his disciples during the final week of his life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I did my undergraduate studies at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. We had 20 or 25,000 students at the time, and there was a banner a statement at the top of every issue of the student newspaper that had a quotation, dot, 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 you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, I finally wrote to the editors and expressed my dismay that they were quoting the Bible, which I liked, but they were quoting it out of context and presenting a half-truth. My question to them was, how is that appropriate in an institution of higher learning? <laughs> because you see, the full text of that quotation says this, John 8, verses 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, you see, the truth will only set you free if you hold to Jesus' teachings. Because truth is embedded in Jesus, and we as his children and as Christians have access to it through the Bible and by means of the Holy Spirit. Picture in your mind Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room. Recorded in four long chapters in the Gospel of John, it is just hours before Jesus' betrayal, trial, and death. In the longest and most intimate teaching we have, there's much about truth. He began to teach them that we are not alone in this quest for truth. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, 
who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then in 1613, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Well, of course, the question of the day for us is, how will we know what is true? The Holy Spirit who lives in us will guide us into all truth. Without the Holy Spirit as the interpreter of Scripture and the applier of that truth to our daily lives, it would remain locked up and unknown to us. Truth is where we start, and it is the first piece of God's armor we put on. Without truth, we wander in the wilderness of life. The truth that is in Jesus is the one foundation in our lives, the place where there are no uncertainties, no doubts. I mentioned Eugene Peterson, who gave us the marvelous paraphrase, the message. Uh, he's a, he was such a gift to the church. He wrote a fascinating book entitled, Eat This Book, which is a quotation from uh, Scripture, Revelation. But this is what he says in the first chapter. Christians feed on Scripture. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. You see, we are people who live and breathe and speak and act in God's truth. Truth is God's view of reality, which we can only experience if we are led by the Spirit of truth. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There is really no hope for us in this fight with the devil and all his wiles unless we possess and are possessed by the truth. Now, I know we're spending a good amount of time on this first piece of armor, but everything falls apart if we are not witnesses to the truth, and it is God's truth that protects us. I'm reminded of Paul in Philippians 2.16, saying uh, that he did not want to run the race for nothing. And it comes through that it matters to Paul that he did not want to run in vain. I like that. He did not want to waste his time. He didn't mind running, toiling, laboring, working hard. But he says, I don't want to get to the end of my life and discover that all that toiling and all that running was for something other than the truth because then it would have been for nothing. He's saying the same thing in Galatians 2.2 when he says, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. One of the most important contexts when we study Scripture is the immediate context of the particular book of the Bible. In this case, 
letter to the Ephesian church. It's very important. Truth is a prominent theme throughout Ephesians. We're at the end of the book in the last chapter. But in the first chapter, verse 13, it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then remembering that there weren't chapters and verses, but this was a letter that was read orally to the congregation from Paul to the Ephesian church. We just go back a couple of paragraphs in the fourth chapter and listen to this. In verses 17 and 18, he reminds them of the futility of their thinking, the way they were darkened in their understanding, having lost all sensitivity. He's speaking to the Gentile Christians in the church at Ephesus. And then in verse 20, he says, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you were heard of him and taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And that's the basis for two verses later, 23 and 24, where he says to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, friends, you can't put on the next piece of armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness, without being mature in the truth of Jesus. Well, the great news is, you and I are indwelt by the spirit of truth. Now, there is a subtle but deadly weapon of the enemy in this battle that some here today listening are probably facing. The guilt of failure or not measuring up. The enemy would have you believe that you can't be faithful because you're not strong enough. You've blown it. You've sinned many times. You're not as good as the other Christians you see every week. And we're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness or to have the breastplate of righteousness in place. This is not about your performance or behavior. We've studied this before, but what an important truth it is for us. Righteousness is the same word translated as justification, and it speaks of our relationship with God. Dear friends, my life and my heart, your life and your heart, are not covered by a breastplate of our goodness and our good works. No. In the Bible, righteousness is right relationships, and we are to have the breastplate of righteousness, which is God's righteousness, in place. 1 Corinthians 3 says, It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Remember, the armor of God is his armor, not ours. So only God can handle its pieces and dress us with it. Isaiah himself experienced this and said, switching metaphors slightly, 
I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 I love the book of Revelation when it reflects on this metaphor. After the triumphant return of Christ, each Christian martyr was given a white robe, signifying, of course, the complete and utter righteousness that can be received only as a gift of God and never something that one can earn or deserve. Revelation 6.11 When we put on God's armor, we stand as the recipients of God conferring upon us a right relationship with him. That's wonderful. So you are indwelt by the spirit of truth and you walk in the power of a right relationship with God. Next, your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. This is a direct reference to the prophet Isaiah who says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Did you notice that both Isaiah and Paul speak of the good news, the gospel? It's the gospel of peace that is the good news. It's a striking term. The good news is that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, has come and defeated evil on the cross. He has won for us the victory. And the result of his victory is that we can now be filled with his peace. Listen to Jesus' words in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Think for a moment about these claims. My peace, and in me you may have peace. These are either some of the most arrogant statements ever uttered or the most awesome truths. Who else could say this but God himself, having come to earth as our Savior and King? This is also why Paul wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My eye caught that language that the peace of God will guard your hearts, making us think of God's protection. The peace of God is God's own peace coming down upon earth and within the soul of the believer because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Clothed with Christ, we experience more than just the absence of conflict. We experience healthy relationships. After all, the Bible's great Old Testament word for peace, shalom, means a state of wholeness, health, and completeness. 
Let me just say a quick word here. If we as Christians are wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace, we will be reconcilers and lovers of everyone. We will not be passing judgment on the world. You and I are reconciled to God, and in turn we are instruments of his reconciling the world unto himself. Next, the text says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows. The King James Version says fiery darts of the evil one. Here, perhaps most clearly, it is evident that it's not ours, but God's armor. Who doesn't know the futility of believing in our own strength? Who doesn't resonate with the cry, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Paul makes a point to tell us that the shield covers all the rest of the armor. It's the shield of confidence in God. In the New Testament, the word faith is an axiomatic word. Everyone understood it when it was spoken. It involved more than the way we use the word in the English language, which is why it's so hard to translate. It involved an act of the mind, believing. It, in fact, it involved an emotional reaction, the trust and confidence that we uh, show when we have faith. But it also involved, without fail, taking action. The reality of our spiritual battle is that you never know what a day is going to bring. The fact that you may have had a wonderful day of blessing does not guarantee that will all be well tomorrow. That may be the very occasion when the enemy will suddenly hurl his darts upon you of all types and kinds and shapes and from all conceivable directions. The highway of life is strewn with the wreckage of Christians who never discovered how to combat the wicked one. They depended on their own moral strength. But we need more. We need the resources of Christ who stands with us and fights with and for us against every attack. The holding up of the shield of faith reminds you that you are looking to God. It means that you are depending upon God and his grace in Christ. There are times when we are so hard-pressed that we can do nothing but call on the name of the Lord. We feel almost incapable of holding up the shield of faith, but we still do so by saying, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. Next, take the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation is a big word. In fact, there are several words in the Old Testament and New Testament that are used. But in the New Testament, one word dominates and it means to make whole. It has the double meaning of saving and healing. 
And in different places, depending upon the context, it's translated, either of those. It's tied intimately to righteousness and to the sacrificial death of Christ. You are made whole. You are saved. You are healed. And we take up the helmet of salvation. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is a very interesting translation. We're not talking about the Bible here. We actually dealt with that back when we talked about truth and having the belt of truth. That's where we uh, have the Bible uh, as a whole and all that it teaches and touches uh, as our defensive uh, armor. What we're talking about here is something very different. I consulted a lot of scholars and commentaries. And it's interesting, any of them who dealt with the original language very quickly made note that this is not speaking of the Bible. And that caught my attention because I was always taught as a little boy that this is the sword of the Spirit, and we would hold up our Bibles. In fact, we had uh, sword drills kind of based upon uh, this verse where we would try to find a certain verse in the Bible before anyone else could. But we have some wonderful resources and access to the original language in a way that no other uh, writing that's 2,000 years old uh, is available to anyone. And if you go to Vine's Expository Dictionary of Words, you'll find what many writers and scholars say very quickly. The significance of this word actually is that it's not the word normally used for word of God. Logo, theu. We talk about the logos, uh, Jesus saying, I am the word uh, in John 1, and the word became flesh. This is not that word. The word is rhema in this place. And, is it, and it's exemplified Vine says in the injunction to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in Ephesians 6.17. Here the reference is not to the whole Bible as such, but to the individual scripture which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need, a prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. Rhema refers to the sayings of the Bible that apply to life situations, challenges, and spiritual attacks. Almost every commentator I read used Jesus' battle in the desert with a temptation from Satan as an example of rhema, of using the sayings of God to uh, respond to a specific attack from Satan. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is an incredibly marvelous truth. Maybe thinking of computer technology can illuminate this for us. The Word of God is inherently powerful, much like our computer programs today are self-installing. I merely put a new program disk in a computer, or maybe I click download on the internet, 
and the program wonderfully self-installs. That's great news to non-techies like me. In a similar fashion, the Word of God is self-installing. Just reading and meditating on the Scriptures releases the inherent power of the Word of God, which gradually self-installs into our lives the will and wisdom of God. That's why it's so crucial that Christians and churches return to the practice of reading the Scripture. The Word of God does not need to be made relevant. Once it self-installs, it affects its own relevance. Wow, what a, uh, what a great group of pieces of armor. God's armor. Here are the affirmations from today's lessons. You are indwelt by the Spirit of Truth. You walk in the power of a right relationship with God. You are a witness and proclaimer of the gospel of wholeness and wellness. You can trust and be confident in a God whose promises are secure and are a shield of protection. You serve a God who makes broken people whole and who saves and heals. You have the word of God that never fails you. In the face of temptation. You and I are in a living relationship with a living God who is only a whisper away. We began by saying that there is a way of living in faithfulness and obedience to God that nourishes our spirit while making life complete and redemptive. It is a picture of holy living that is based upon Paul's teaching of the armor of God that protects us spiritually as we live for him. In closing, I would like to give credit to Major Joanne Shade for the inspiration for this particular study. In the July 2013 article she wrote in The War Cry, it caught my eye during our last two studies because it is entitled, What is Your Plan to Stop Sinning? And she gave a wonderful teaching which included, in a very practical plan, the third step was, I will put on armor. Let me read from that article for just a moment. She remembered the camp course she learned years ago that said, you got to put on the armor of God. You can't do it alone. You need the power of God. you got to put on the armor of God. And so this person found a framed image of the armor of God taken from Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and she hung it in her hallway right above the basket where she kept her car keys. That was step three in a plan for this Christian to stop sinning in her life. Just so you have an idea, step one was to keep your eyes on Jesus. Step two was to halt in vulnerable situation. Halt meaning hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You catch yourself and you address it immediately. Third, she put on God's armor. And fourth, she gave herself grace. Friends, my prayer is that all of us will be able to stand firm by putting God's armor 
to work in our lives. God bless you. And we'll look forward to our next time together on The Holiness Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.